Today's Power Talk episode was a reality check. Greg and I sat down with the manager of a utility to understand what will happen as our dependence and consumption of electricity increases while our ability to generate, transmit, and firm faces brand new challenges. This one was an eye-opener. Power Talk is a series of conversations about the changing electric grid, how you can leverage new technologies to increase your reliability and lower your bills, and most certainly, how to safeguard yourself. All right, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Power Talk. My name is Nate Woods and I'm coming to this with about 15 years of cat dealer marketing experience. Beside me, as always, is Greg Lamberg, who's coming to this with over 30 years of utility power experience. And today's special guest is Brian Bertacci. Brian has over 35 years of leadership roles in the electric power industry, managing all phases of complicated organizations, including human resources, finance, accounting, administration, engineering, regulatory, development, and operations. He's experienced in both private and public organizations. He has served as the chief operating officer of a large energy organization. He's served as an area executive, board member, and board chairman of many large complex organizations. Holds an electric engineering degree from Cal Polytech. He is a licensed professional mechanical engineer and holds an engineering contractor's license. He has a master's of business administration from St. Mary's. As a young man, he wintered over at Palmer Station, Antarctica as the plant manager. During his career, he's worked all over the world, including Europe, Iraq, Egypt, South America, the Falkland Islands, the Middle East, and the Antarctic. Those that know Brian often refer to him as an engineer with a sense of humor and lots of practical experience at making things work. So hello, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Brian, I'm real curious about you wintering over in Antarctica. How did that come about? What was that like? Yeah, it was one of the interesting things. My mother was a teacher and my father worked civil service. So I went to college to get my electrical engineering degree and I hit that point called ROM. You guys know the ROM point? Not familiar. Run out of money. (laughs) (laughs) So I was about three years in and I went out on a co-op experience and signed up with a company called Holmes & Arbor. And I wound up down in the Antarctic as the station engineer. And the plant manager came down and took about two months to see what he was getting into for the winter and quit and left. So as a young guy, I wound up as the plant manager, the base manager of Pauper Station Antarctica for, and we got, it was difficult to get out that particular year. So it turned into about a year and a half down there. Oh my goodness. What were living conditions like? Was it barracks right next to the power plant? Well, we had a small, we had a small facility, but it would be large in the summer because all the scientists would come down and have their projects that they would be out implementing. And so it was very interesting. I really enjoyed every day I had down there. I read literally a book a day and being cut off from a lot of the stuff we normally have in our society mm-hmm. for that period of time was absolutely fantastic. Right. You know, and so we had a small group in the winter but we had a very large group in the summer to manage. And so we managed expeditions for folks and got them to their study point where they had to go out and do a bird study, say, somewhere. And the location was really, Palmer Station was in a great location. So it had 15,000 mating pairs of penguins on the island that was just about a quarter mile away. Wow. So it was fantastic to watch. So a lot of great stories down there. Had a great year and a half. You keep up with any of the uh, the guys and gals you were stationed there with? Uh, intermittently, none of them have gone crazy from when you're over in the Antarctic, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Well, so what was, what was life before electric power for you, and how did you decide to get into electric power? 
Yeah, I think uh, my dad gave me great advice, young man. He he was very intuitive and very good with mechanical, electrical things. And he always told me, go into the electric business because no one knows what the hell you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, flowing energy through wire, that is that is magic, if, if there's anything that's magic. And yeah, so I guess today uh, you're managing Elmhurst Municipal, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, can you, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, Elmhurst Municipal, uh, maybe like start out with maybe the territory and who who do you serve? Who lives in your territory? Yeah, I think just kind of the whole big picture there, it's really interesting because I've worked about 50% of my lifetime career in public and about 50% in private. And it's really an interesting participating in that dichotomy of universes, right? And this it's always fun, especially at this point in my career. It's more public service, right? Um, to run, especially these days, the challenges of running any utility. Um, this is a nice small one, so I get to wear any hat I want to on any particular day. You know, one day I'm working on a contract, and the next day I'm out in the field. We're doing some tests on a piece of equipment or troubleshooting a problem, and <laughs> you know, the next day doing a union negotiation, and the next day blah blah blah. So it makes for a very interesting, uh, you know, job. You probably get to have pretty decent uh, relationships with the folks who work with you, just just because the the scale isn't so large. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we. You know. You really work on everybody's strengths rather than on their weakness. Sometimes large organizations, it's tough because the system pairs people together for jobs rather than somebody you know, managing all that, you know, and folks managing that process. So we're small, we've got about 16,000 customers. Um, our customer base is different than some because we have a lot of residential, some light commercial, no really heavy industrial. Uh, mostly overhead transmission line versus underground, um, you know, which is very different. It's 100% only distribution, so it's all, because Greg has known me for a long time, it's fascinating to be in a role where we don't have transmission or generation, which makes the job a lot less complicated. But there's still, it's funny, that's been offset by all the issues, you know, swirling around out there in the energy industry these days. So it's just as complicated as it's been running a big organization yeah. in the past with all those other features and varied personnel and varied con contractual issues and technical issues. So, so you said something that's um, kind of new to me or, or might be new to some of our listeners, which is you don't generate any electricity as a utility. So I guess, where do you buy it? What's the, yeah, how do you buy electricity and what's, what makes one brand of electricity different than another? That's a great question. I think, you know, in Washington State, the public overall really benefits from all the hydro power that was put in years and years ago. You know, currently there's a lot of issues swirling around hydro, fish issues and everything else. But in general, the price of electricity has been so low in Washington State compared to California. I think most of your listeners now look, what would you say you're paying now on the average in California for electricity? Oh, north of 20 cents. Yeah, 20 cents. And so we're five cents, five and a half cents, just as you know, benchmarking point. And an abundance of water, an abundance of hydro also means great, you know, system control and reliability, right? To be able to back up the solar and wind that's out there. So Washington State really benefits from that. So do the customers. So your generation mix is prim primarily hydro? Yeah, and so, you know, you look at it literally, it's extremely green for us, which is great, sure, right? Sure. So, and, and, and renewable. So BPA is our primary supplier. So we're a full requirements customer of BPA, meaning BPA not only provides the generation, but they provide the firming, you know, the system uh, frequency control, everything. And who's BPA? Uh, Bonneville Power Administration. It's a federal organization. 
Okay. And so in Washington State, years and years ago, there was, in fact, we're just working on renewing the contract right now with all the parties, but all the parties have a, effectively a buy-in to all that generation. So I'm sure you remember the, the heat wave of last year. Um, you know, surely that caused a, a spike in demand for you uh, and your customers. How did how did you handle that? Yeah, yeah, there there was some spike in demand, but we were still far under our contractual amount that we have to serve our customers. So it really wasn't an issue for our customers. The the larger issue, as you know, was some of the transmission line issues that were going on because of some of the fires and stuff. Some of the transmission lines weren't able to provide the load to some load centers. And that's like in California, same thing happening down there. That's what creates brownouts sometimes and, and scarcity. What? How did that affect um, your customers here? It didn't affect our customers here. Wonderful. Well, let me ask you a question about BPA. I, I saw recently, Brian, that uh, BPA announced that they just joined the EIM, you know, and, uh, and the EIM is the energy imbalance market. Basically, yeah. they're trying to tie all West Western load-serving entities together into a large market uh, through the CAISO. And uh, maybe uh, from outside of California, we certainly get a lot of impressions from people with regards to their thoughts on the energy imbalance market in California. But it seems to me that uh, a lot of the participants from Pacific Northwest um, are seeing an opportunity to sell their cheap power into California and make a premium on it where the way I'm looking at this, I fear that uh, customers in the Pacific Northwest are going to see their prices increase significantly as, uh, as the market becomes uh, more homogeneous. And uh, any, any thoughts on that? Maybe just a quick overview of, uh, of you know, as, as a load-serving entity in the Pacific Northwest, an overview of EIM and uh, what your thoughts are of how that may change the landscape with regards to uh, serving customers. That's a whole deep bucket of issues, right, Greg? <laughs> well, that's a deep bucket. I can pick any one of the baits that are down there on that one. Um, you know, I certainly can't speak for BPA. But in, in the big picture of things, my experience so far on that topic is BPA has been well-intentioned, um, especially during all the COVID issues. They were working hard to try and not have a price or cost increase for customers during COVID. And it really was true. We were flat with them. They did everything they could. And, you know... A big chunk of that comes from revenue from that imbalance market, right? So their BPA itself is making dollars that they never made before, which is enhances the fact that they don't have to pass on some costs back to us as all the users and long-term load, you know, that they've served for such a long time. And plus their package is really good. As you know, that it's a tiny amount of nuclear and tiny amount of anything else in there. It's like, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I'd have to look, but it's, it's, it's like over 95%. I mean, it's it's huge, renewable. So I think I think all the uh, all the intentions are good with regards to EIM, but I just I see ultimately as the pricing in the West going up as a result, as opposed to going down like some people hope. Yeah, and I think that's a another good topic we get into in itself. We could go on that topic for 15 or 20 minutes as price, right? Because that's where all this is headed, is the higher price. And that's hard to quantify right now because there's so much going on in the marketplace. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to, before we get into price, it comes down to what we in the industry call, you know, resource adequacy. And, you know, resource adequacy is the ability of a load-serving entity to provide enough power at all times of the day for, for its customers. And, Nate, we've had this discussion throughout the series about, you know, some of the more conventional technologies 
were more around the clock and more steady state type of technologies that didn't mm -hmm. uh, suffer from the uh, from the intermittency from a lot of the renewable technologies that are being embraced right now by load serving entities. But uh, as the grid does become more and more intermittent, um, you know, what are some of the things that you know keep load serving entities like 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 you and people who are you know have the experience of thirty five years have seen this industry from every side, understand the generation and how it all comes together. I mean, what are, what are some of the concerns <clears throat> that you have looking forward? What's some of the stuff that, you know, keeps you awake at night with regards to being able to serve your customers reliably and cost-effectively? Yeah, I think after literally 40 years in this industry, it's interesting seeing how divisive it truly is out there and trying to get past that divisiveness. Um, the thing we all have in common, which is fascinating, from 8 to 80, whether you're socialist, Democrat, Republican, conservative, we all walk into that room and we throw that light switch and we, everybody, all of us, has an expectation that the lights are gonna come on. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's fascinating when you throw the switch and it doesn't come on, what's the first thing you think? The bulb's out. But in, in I didn't my, pay my bill. Yeah, you're right, <laughs> or I didn't pay my bill. Um, but really, you look at what's happening overall, all of that is being damaged and destroyed in very quick fashion in the industry because of all these changes, you know, and let me, and I make an analogy. So, so in fact, let's talk about the regulatory front, right? So what keeps me up at night? So you see a lot of the regulations, whether it's California or Washington, they're very similar. We're moving toward all electric cars really quickly by, you know, on the regulatory front, there's a large push for, to get rid of natural gas furnaces, natural gas water heaters. Um, that push is coming from all sorts of directions, including even changing the building code. So that's coming at us. And, and, and I think the public and our representatives have made that decision. The laws are enacted, and so our jobs are to co comply. But I would make the analogy that it's not dissimilar from us having a program where we're going to move everybody in Washington State and California to Jupiter. I mean, where's the space program? Where's NASA? in this project, right? Because you look at, let's just kind of break it down from the beginning, which I think is helpful. I look at people's houses, anybody here, listeners, and if you're living in a house that's been built since when, 1980, 85, you've got a 200 amp service on that house, right? At 220 volts. Look what we're adding. So you look at, look at a Tesla right now, right? The charging station for a Tesla needs an 80 amp service, right? And my wife, and by the way, we own an electric car. We've had one for three years, really enjoy it. But my wife always points out, she says, you're not going to have one electric car, you're going to have two, right? Mm. So you need two chargers. So that's 80 amps plus 80 amps. There's a huge push that all the new construction, even retrofit, uh, will be electric water heater. That's another 30 amps at 220. And the furnace or heat air conditioning will be electric, which is roughly a 50 amp service. So you add those up. We're looking at 240 amps. And even if we want to give some give back and forth, just pick 200 amps, right? So we're effectively need to double the amount of service at your house. And so you look at the current pricing, you look at you know tearing up the driveway to put another conduit up there and another set panel to feed this stuff and the stuff inside the house to put in the service for the charger for the two cars and the circuit to the water heater and the circuit to the furnace. You're looking at ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, and then you got the appliance conversion issue. So the individual customer has a twenty thousand dollar bill he's facing there. But let's go backwards. So if you look at that big picture, you're going to double the size of the sub panel at your house. 
Well, that means I have to double the amount of transformers I have running down your street that are out there, all the pad mounts. I have to double the amount of wire I have. I have to double the amount of poles. So in a lot of cases, can't even support the size of the wire that we'll need. So we've got to do all that. So start breaking it down. Look at, look at $10,000 on your house to be able to implement that stuff right there. On the distribution front, I'll look at just my little utility and make it simple, say 15,000 instead of 16,000 customers. You're looking at, I think PG&E, a lot of big utilities use now about $3 million a mile for distribution. I've got 265 miles built into my system. So I'm looking at a $300 million um, you know, cost, excuse me, an $800 million cost, and I'm looking at $50,000 per customer to support that. And then adding on that the transmission, because you gotta go all the way back, right? Everybody in this room knows, and many of your listeners, we gotta create the generation and transmission. So what's the cost of the transmission to be able to get it to us? There's another big one. I think a, a number out there in the industry for a long time has been, we got inflation going on, so a lot of people would agree, a two million, three million a mile with permitting and everything else for transmission. There's another 300 million for my 15,000 customers or 20,000 per customer. And then new generation, um, you look at that, it's so hard to permit anything. And I think most of the technical side of where we work know that wind and solar is incapable of providing reliability, which is what we need to support all this, right? These chargers, in fact, that Tesla charger, they say nine and a half hours to charge that car from, a, you know, when it's run down. Mm -hmm. But so just imagine trying to supply that load. It's going to be at night when people come home to plug their car in. Where's the wind and where's the solar? Everybody all at once. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I think all this is like a rocket ship to Jupiter for all of us, right? And, and, and again, there's no, where's, where's, where's Houston control? Where's, where's NASA? Where's the space program where, and just, and I go backwards on all that and say, imagine how many resources we'll have to divert in this country to make this happen. How many transformers do you think are out there in the United States? Millions and millions? We've got to double that, that amount of transformers. We got to do all the earth moving to move all whatever, if it's going to be copper, aluminum for those transformers, make millions and millions. I can't, and even today, I can't get a transformer today, what keeps me up at night with the supply chain issues. That has moved from like six months out to two years or four years on transformers. Wow. So now yeah. we're talking about a space program to support what this plan is. And uh, we don't have the resources. We don't have the bodies either. So right now, linemen or line workers um, are like unicorns. They're so hard to get. And it takes 6,000 hours of training. It takes literally about six years to move an apprentice to a journeyman. And same thing, with all this work, we'll have to literally triple the amount of linemen that we have to make any of this happen whatsoever. Um, so anyway, you ask what keeps me up at night. <laughs> You know, I, I'm sorry I asked, actually, because... Uh, <laughs> That's a lie. I, I think you've really put a lot of levity uh, to the challenge here. I think we're seeing that in, in many technical areas. Uh, certainly, um, we have consistent challenges in, in hiring good technicians and retaining good technicians. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in becoming a technician at Peterson Power Systems, we'd love to hear from you. But that's a big issue, the uh, the linemen of the future. And uh, also, if, if you've never been to a lineman competition, um, I went to a lineman's rodeo last year and was just amazed by, uh, by what these guys do and how much pride they have in their work and how hard they work. So 
you know, if you're driving out there and uh, you see your local utility truck next to a pole and those guys are out there, thank them for what they're doing because mm-hmm. they're the guys who are keeping the lights on. They're the guys who are making it happen. And, and that, that is going to be a huge challenge. The other piece of this uh, with regards to our spaceship to Jupiter, I love, I love the way you've, you've termed that. I think we're going to stick with that, uh, with that thought for a while is um, we're just a takeoff. I'm not sure what we're T-minus right now, but we really haven't even taken off, and we're already seeing tremendous challenges. Uh, for example, California just realized that we're short 1,700 to 5,000 megawatts this summer. Uh, we went through a similar routine last summer, and uh, you know we've we've had these conversations on this podcast about you know the shutdown of Diablo Canyon and the shutdown of gas plants, and you know can it really be replaced? Last week, you know, to your point with materials, Brian, we 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 dove deep just on uh, lithium ion and batteries. The the amount of infrastructure that's going to have to be put in place, the amount of earth that's going to have to be moved um, to support, uh, you know, EVs is just tremendous. Just to give you an idea, um, you know, the, the latest thought is it's about $5 trillion that needs to be immediately invested into the earth moving sector. And, you know, how do you get your head around $5 trillion? It doesn't sound like that much when the U.S. government is writing trillion dollar checks every day these days. But $5 trillion is the equivalent of the amount of wealth that was lost globally in the 2007 world financial um, financial crisis. And, and that's what we're looking to invest right now uh, during in inflationary times when uh, when piggy banks are really challenged. So this is this is a, a, a very, very significant challenge. And just to go back to something, because this has been a question, I know, on, on Nate, you've asked me this many times. It's a question in my mind, and it's a question in, on, on many of our listeners' minds. Um, is 100% renewable energy even possible with today's technology? Well, and, and, you know, in this conversation, the technical side of the business, you know, I really applaud you folks are concerned about carbon, wanting to reduce the carbon footprint. But again, it's it's the, what, where's the plan? It's it's the detailed plan in this because, as you know, and your listeners know, when you come to your room and you throw that light switch on, some generation somewhere is turning up to support that, and when you throw the light switch off, some generation is turning down. It took us 150 years to create this incredible infrastructure we have, and it's fairly inexpensive. And so, you know, to to answer your question, where is this really going? Right? Look, we're not going to Jupiter, right? I mean, this plan, you know. What they're dictating as far as legislative, you know, regulations, can we achieve that or not? And that's, I think clearly we can't. And so what is the plan? And I think it's fascinating when you look out there in the market. One thing I do see is what are people actually doing when they look forward on this? And I, you know, we've discussed this before, you and I, is look at what's happening on the metering front, right? When you really look at what all the utilities are doing, they're putting in new metering that will allow for time of use billing, will allow for demand billing, and even further, all the new metering and the meter manufacturers are working on being able, through that meter, to be able to set their setting standards, and they're working right now with the charge point, electric charge companies, with the big appliance companies, to be able to turn on and off that appliance remotely, right, or control that appliance. Because the reality of it is, if... So I want to cut in your... Well, let let me make one more statement, just so... We're super increasing demand, but we're going the opposite way on generation assets and transmission and distribution, right? So we're increasing demand and we're going the opposite way. 
what's that going to lead to? It's going to lead to huge price spikes. And how do you handle price spikes? It's going to be time you use pricing. It's back to the, another good analogy. Look at the freeways in California, right? We started with the carpool lane. What happened with the carpool lane? It turned into the Lexus lane. So if you have the money and you can afford it, you, can, you don't have to sit in traffic. You can drive right by, which is going to be the same thing with the electric use. If you can afford it, you'll be able to wash your clothes whenever you want. You'll be able to take a hot shower whenever you want. But let's face it, look at where that's going. Time of use is going to drive folks that are, and most of all of us are in that position where you're going to be making decisions on when to take a shower based on the price, when to use hot water, when to, you'll run your heat up in your room when it's cold because you know on the next hour, maybe the price is going to triple, right? And so you'll run it up to 74 degrees or whatever and let it cool off. I, it's going to be interesting, you know, watching all this because the technical solution, you know, you're back to the point. These numbers we talked about, you know, 10,000 to do your house, all this stuff, that's trillions of dollars. And where are those dollars going to come from to support all this increase in infrastructure? Plus, look at the permitting side of that. Look how hard it is to permit a transmission line, how hard it is to permit a power plant. And, and even if we all can agree to deal with a carbon issue and say, we're going to build nuclear plants, right? Do you want one next to your house? You know, even you, I mean, you know, that's a huge challenge for all of us. They're trying to build these nuclear plants, these new great design nuclear plants. They're trying to put them in some of the old coal fire plants, but there's only so much of that can do. Again, to support what we've been legislated to do, we need to double the amount of infrastructure we have from the beginning to the end of the chain. So sorry. Now yeah, let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit because that was, uh, that was a uh, very, very impressive uh, salad of, uh, of issues there. Um, time of use, can, can you, from the utility perspective, we've had some discussions on this, but from the utility load serving perspective, can you explain to our listeners uh, what exactly time of use is and, and how you see it working in the future? Yeah, I th I'm, when you, again, let's look at pricing, right? So pricing will, at some point, come all the way down from the top down to the customer, right? Which is, what are the load periods where uh, the electricity is extremely valuable and what are the periods where it's cheaper? And so time of use means we can pass that along to our customers as a price signal so they can look at when they'll use that electricity. For instance, to run your, your dryer, your electric dryer, 30 amps, 220 volts, do you want to do that when it's one quarter of the price or at full price? And giving people the power to make that decision is where that's headed. But regardless, we're going from a, we created this huge amount of infrastructure, which was awesome. You could wash your clothes anytime you want. You could, you know, take a shower anytime you want, run the dishwasher anytime you wanted. We're moving to a world where that is going to be either controlled by you or by the utility or by the government because there won't be enough resources to go around. How do we manage that, as, as you suggested? Wind and solar is great, but it can't act as frequency control for the grid. And, for, and it's not available all the time. As you know, the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine. What do you do? Look at Texas, major power outage down there. How, how do we have enough resources to make sure we don't put people out of power? So we're making a decision as a society, are we gonna live in a, in a, in a system where I can wash my clothes whenever I want, electricity's cheap, versus we're gonna really expand the infrastructure technology so that all these devices will have some kind of internet control in it, which will you know, cost money in that device that you buy, um, and the price of the electricity will be expensive. That's 
kind of the two dichotomies. Well, it's even more to that. I mean, just a quick thought on the device. It'll make the device cost more. Well, It'll make the device less reliable and right. give the device a shorter lifespan. Yeah. I don't want to do a software upgrade on my washing machine. Well, I, want, I want to jump into this specific issue about can, the... Can uh, I, 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 if you don't mind, I'm sorry again, but it, it's interesting. Hey, I told you this would happen if you give yeah. Brian a microphone. I warned you. <laughs> you did? Give him a I'm microphone brutal. and get out yeah. of the way. No, please, go ahead, Brian. No, but the, you know, that whole meter in front of you one more time. So, like right now, in a lot of cases with the old style, somebody wanted to put a solar panel in, as an example, or an electric car to get a reduced rate. We had to put in a separate meter. But where all this is going is that single meter will be able to control all that. Right, so that's just I just wanted to kind of push in on that last comment that you made because that is where all that technology is is moving. Sorry. Yeah, I want to I want to kind of table that aside, and you know we'll, we'll make a note to come back to this. But I, I think the, uh, the the munis and I think uh, the load serving entities here in the Pacific Northwest have uh, done a lot more and gotten a lot creative with their smart meters than uh, what we have seen in California to date. And I think I want to talk about that as well because. Uh, you know, from from a, a PG&E perspective, which is a large portion of Peterson Power Systems territory, uh, they went through the smart meter initiative. They put all the smart meters on these homes, and besides for differentiating between, uh, in our time of use system right now, it's just two tiered. You have the regular pricing and then the more better pricing, which is you know a, a multiplier during the five to nine p.m. portion of the evening. So it's not really time of use yet. You're just being penalized. Mm -hmm. for, for using energy uh, when it's more expensive, when there's no solar or wind in that, in that evening ramp. But, uh, but having said that, I do want to go back, and because uh, last we spoke, I think there were some really creative things going on with, uh, with smart metering here in the Pacific Northwest. Can you define smart metering? Well, I think, you know, smart, it's interesting technology. So in the, let's kind of go back in time a little bit. Let's do the short version of this. So, the original metering we had, remember we had to, we had meter readers and they actually walked the circuit and they went up to your house and they wrote down that number on the meter and we knew what time and date that was and we would bill you based on that. Mm -hmm. Then to be a little bit more efficient, um, and, and this is in broad picture, there's been a lot of other steps, but metering went in where it had a radio in it basically, a two-way radio. So I could have a meter reader drive down the street in a van and it would automatically wake up the meter on your house and send that information signal to the van, mm -hmm. which goes into the computer system. They would come back to the office, take that device and upload it into the system, and that's how you would get your bill. Hmm. Uh, smart metering is kind of the next step beyond that, but there's a lot of variability in this. There's, there's some folks now that are putting in meters where every single meter has a cellular communication device in it, just like a cell phone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, cellular data. So they can see second by second what load is in your house. With that system, they'll be able to interface to a device. Like as I was saying, talking about EV chargers. So we used to have to have a totally separate meter for that EV charger. Well, now that smart meter is going to be able to talk to that EV charger. And I can bill you separately for the amount of energy that EV charger consumes and potentially at a lower rate or a higher rate for that matter, whatever that particular utility wants to do. And I can turn that charger on and off or control when that charger will charge your car, right? So, and, and so that's the capability. So that, that's, that's boggling and, and intrusive to me, just hearing that um, a regulated company or, or a government agency could uh, essentially reach inside my house and turn appliances on and off 
uh, regardless of my wishing. Is that is that an accurate? Yeah, and I think I think if about? well, I don't want to. I'm saying that's all the technology that's evolving right now. If you go to a lot of these conferences and you know electrical industry and look at what they're doing, being able to manage because you have a huge problem, right? So we got solar and wind. Most of your folks on this call understand that. Remember the old duck curve and the load curve, where you're trying to match up that wind and solar to your actual load. And during those shoulder periods where the sun's going down and the wind is dying, how we're managing all that. There's a lot of folks in the industry seeing that the only way to match, because you, right now you can't build a gas-fired plant, good luck. They're struggling to build these nuclear projects, and it's going to be interesting to see how that turns out. With no new generation, and a lot of this generation not being reliable, and I mean that with a capital R defined term, reliability, um, you know, how are we going to manage that? And that's what you're seeing. You go to these conferences, all the smart metering is able to switch stuff on and off. And it, it, imagine how incredible it is because right now, if I had to, I, like say we wound up like California, Washington State, whereas you have brownouts, right? Because of. I, I'll be able to do all that through the meters. I just cut your meter. Like right now, I can cut your meter from, you know, with this new technology, I can cut your, I don't have to send somebody out to turn your meter on and off. I can do it from, I can do it right here off my iPad, right? That's mm -hmm. where we're going. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And uh, so the point is, is that all of this technology is being developed, Nate, it's not necessarily in use yet, but, but it's all being developed and, um, you know, some of the challenges are, are, are just mind-boggling because, you know, and we've, we've touched on this before, but um, not only is it getting more and more complex and more and more difficult, more and more dynamic to manage um, a, a system, but the people sitting around the table uh, trying to manage these systems have, have, have changed a lot. And we've, we've discussed and watched over the years how, you know, a lot of engineers have been replaced with, with regulatory people. Um, you know, uh, economists have been replaced with, uh, with environmentalists. And a very, very different uh, mindset uh, coming to attack these problems, more from a regulatory front than from, a, uh, from, from an engineering and, uh, and te technological front. And uh, we're, we're going to continue to see those challenges. One of the things, you know, Brian, you, you live your life in front of the meter. And a lot of this discussion today is in front of the meter from a wholesale perspective. Uh, Peterson Power Systems, much of the work we do is behind the meter. And as these challenges and as these uh, shortcomings of current regulatory policy manifest themselves and become more and more apparent, uh, we're seeing more and more customers take things into their own hands behind the meter. And we are doing uh, tremendous things behind the meter with regards to uh, hybrid systems and backup systems, utilizing renewable fuels, utilizing re renewable diesel, you know, 100% renewable diesel fuel, uh, new, renewable natural gas, energy storage solutions. and Hydrogen coming soon. Hydrogen, a lot, a lot of stuff going on in hydrogen. So um, as, you know, the, the need, the, uh, the desire to address the need as, uh, as, for lack of better words, I think, as the front of the meter sector is fumbling a little bit, um, large users behind the meter are, uh, are taking things into their own hands. And uh, a lot of residential customers are taking things into their own hands too. In California, on the residential side, there's a huge discussion now about net metering, net energy metering. And this is 
um, something that you know has, has fascinated me for a while. There's the this notion that there is societally we are um, subsidizing people who have solar rooftops um, from the from the system basis to encourage those solar rooftops, where perhaps uh, the notions out there that those who can't afford those solar rooftops are actually subsidizing those who can. And just, you know, any thoughts on that from a load-serving uh, entity perspective? I know you've got a lot of experience in the California market. I don't see nearly as much solar up here in the Pacific Northwest. You'd be surprised. You know, well, <laughs> you know, every, every time we, we were we were driving in uh, in uh, the Hillsborough area last week and uh, we saw some solar rooftops. Golden optimist. Boy, those people are really optimistic. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so it's a different piece. But obviously, you know, solar is... Uh, we want to be grabbing it everywhere we can, but any thoughts on that and how that might change? Because I know that's a huge issue right now in the industry with regards to net metering. Sure, there's a couple of things I'd like to respond to what you just said. One is, <clears throat> you were talking about the different, you know, the kind of the industries evolving with who, who's who in the zoo, right? Um, I, I, we just need more constructive arguments. I mean, and I think what's happening, I do see uh, through a lot of the organizations when you look at the organizations that are, let me back up. So we're all being impacted on a regulatory front, right? What's driving all this stuff is the regulatory front. So a lot of the organizations we had that used to be in the old days more technical, we used to talk about keeping the lights on and the gears turning. That's turned to very much a regulatory discussion and a legislative discussion. And these folks need our help more. But I, what I see personally is more and more of the technical people that are up at that level in those discussions, the percentage of them keeps decreasing and they're less apt to want to have a constructive argument because of just how things are out there these days. You know, bringing up stuff like we just talked about, you know, challenging the system and say, where's the plan is very dangerous for folks in this industry even to be able to say that, which is unfortunate. You danger? I'm saying that people, you know, look at, look at what happens out there in the social media with folks who question any direction that's going on or ask for where's the plan. And believe me, I'm not even questioning the direction. My issue is where's the plan? Because I want to support it. But again, we're talking trillions of dollars. We're talking about diverting a lot of resources to make it happen. We're talking about digging up a lot of ground to get the materials for all these transformers and wire and poles and switches and controls. So where, where's the plan for that? So, and yeah, trillions of, of dollars. So. Uh, I, I have an inkling of what kind of a scale you're talking about. Earlier, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars for transformers, hundreds of million dollars. But that's for, just for you know. I was talking about our little that's for sixteen thousand yeah, yeah, customers. Yeah. So, so we have this small uh, Elmhurst Municipal, and you're, you're floating out hundreds of millions for this, hundreds of millions for that. How does that relate to your baseline? Are we talking about doubling your operation budget more than that? Yeah, that, I mean, you, you hit another item on the head that I left off just to keep it simple is that's exactly right. So if you look at all this total dollar amount that I'm saying, it's literally $100,000 per customer that we've got to extract out of everybody. Right? $100,000, like, that's per yeah. household? Yeah, per household. And it's probably going to be more than that. It's probably more like 150000 And multiply that across $200 million or whatever people in the United States. I don't know what the current count is, where we're at. But that's a huge, huge, huge number. And again, from a nation perspective, we need a space program because we got to decide what resources are we going to divert to be able to do that and where are those resources are going to come from you're going to you know I, they got to come from somewhere from you know and and so somebody's got to be able to do that you, you asked a couple more questions i'll respond to in there one is 
solar in the Northwest when you got five cent power or even seven cent. You know, folks are, you know, there's a lot of solar companies running around, you know, trying to do their best to sell solar, but it's hard to make the economics work on that basis. And plus, to answer your other part of the question I know you're leading into is, it is, there's some disparity there because somebody who's hooking their solar onto our system to get paid, well, we're still there for their reliability, right? When their solar's not working, they still want to have their lights on and the heat on in the house. And so that's back to, how that whole metering issue is changing. It's gonna go more to demand charges, right? Right, to be able to cover that, right? Because you could be, say you're 100% off grid, but you know, you're still connected to the grid because once in a while your stuff fails and you gotta pull down power from the grid. Well, shouldn't you pay something for that reliability along, you know, not just go a free vehicle. Yeah, no, you, 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 have to, you have to make sure that infrastructure's in place and you have to maintain that infrastructure for that customer. I, I always get a kick when people tell me they're off the grid, they're 100% solar. I said, really? So do you have batteries? Well, no. And, you know, do, do you have backup generation? Well, no. And, you know, a lot of people in California found out during the public safety power shutoffs that thought they were 100% solar that when the utility threw the switch and the power went off, they didn't have any power. Yeah, right. Even though the they had solar on top of their house because yeah. the, that power isn't going to the house. It's going to the utility. And, and or they needed the fr- to see the frequency to be able to keep operating. I, yeah. You asked the other question about behind the meter. So that's another good long discussion we could have but um <clears throat> well we've got about uh 40 minutes on this one i think maybe we uh we put a nice bow on it yeah you know let's grab a cup of coffee take a few minutes and uh, we'll come back with part two of this because i think there's some real meat on the table here that we could probably uh, chew on for another uh 30 to 40 minutes i'm all for more constructive argument you know, and there, was, <laughs> there, there was a class of people that got a shout out in this episode and i would just like to echo it one more time which is the linemen going out, regardless of the weather, regardless of the challenges, uh, making sure folks like myself, uh, folks like, like both of you and everyone listening, have power. So a big thank you yeah. Yeah. And, and, and linemen. And, and I prefer to say line worker these days is what we should all do because thank you. We're, it, it's, it's, a, it's a job classification dominated by men. And everybody's working real hard to find more and more women in this role. And for all the women out there listening, what a great job this is. I can tell you in the Northwest, because of the scarcity of line workers, there was a huge increase most of them got this last year, literally on the order of 25%. So typical lineman right now, or line worker, makes $60 an hour, plus all the great benefits that are behind in these utilities. And they get a lot of overtime because there's not enough of them out there to do the work. So I'd encourage any women out there that are interested. It's a great career path. You get to work outside. Well, what's um, the first step? If, if we've first step a- is to, and generally there's a couple things. One is there's a line, there's line schools. There's one in the Midwest. There's also one down in Oregon. And that's got a certain cost. But a lot of times if you're ex-military, you can get funding for that. To be able to go through, you need kind of that as your background. Then well, you need well, what to, do they want to type into their into their search engine if they want to get started? Um, you know, uh, lineman college or you know, lineman unfortunately college. it's lineman college, but <laughs> it is what it is. Um, and, and they can search those colleges. Um, and then it's like I said, it's six thousand hours of training behind that. So it's not just six thousand hours working; it's six thousand hours of what you can count as training. And so we have some utilities don't have apprentice programs. And many of them didn't for a lot of years. That's a whole other good topic if you want to get into that we've been negligent about as, as a nation, right? So we just don't have enough line workers. It's a great career path for any women out there. I would encourage you to go check it out and think about it because a lot of utilities would just love to have you. 
So anyway, you can check out uh, NLC and uh, or Google lineman.edu. IBW is a good resource because you look at a lot of the IBW sites, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Um, that's where all this training comes from and the standards. And the safety has gone way up compared to the old days because of IBW and all the training. Well, we'll be sure to put those uh, those links down in the description below for anyone sure. uh, looking for that. Thank you for everyone to listening, making it this far. Greg, anything to say to our listeners? Uh, let, let's keep the conversation going. I think people are getting uh, the idea that you know we're not necessarily trying to serve up solutions here, but we're trying to have a, a, an ongoing, very honest uh, conversation about the industry, the challenges that we face, and uh, how we may, uh, how we might be able to address them societally going forward. So, with that, let's wrap this one up. Uh, let's grab some coffee, and uh, we'll come back shortly. Thanks. Too much.